0: Okay, and we're recording. Uh, thank you for joining us for another uh, edition of Hagley History Hangout. My name is Ben Spone, oral historian in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, during these Hangouts, we like to introduce you to some of the fascinating research being done using the collections at Hagley, but today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I'm sitting down with Joe Plasky, and we're going to talk about the work he's doing building up our DuPont DuPont Textile Fibers Oral History Collection. So we'll be talking about building and developing a collection that is currently still being added to and open for research. Uh, Joe has been working on this project for well over a decade, and I'd like to hand the reins over to him to tell you more about this fascinating project. Uh, so. Joe, thank you for being here today.
1: Well, thank you for asking me to come. Uh, I've been uh, interested in coming up to Hagley and meeting everybody up there, but I haven't had an opportunity yet. But uh, we've had great support, great coordination uh, online and telephone. And I uh, appreciate the help that I've gotten from from Hagley and, and all the people that have helped me in the last uh uh 18 years or however long it was the uh it it's probably worth a nickel to give you a little bit of background on for for me and uh i think the background that you'll hear uh will fit in with the way i've approached this project but uh i graduated from west virginia university with a a degree in engineering Went in the army uh, and uh, served my time, and when I came out, I uh, got a job with uh, DuPont in Martinsville, Virginia. Martinsville was one of the uh, uh, nylon plants in existence at that time, and I didn't know anything about nylon. I didn't know how it was made or or anything, so I. Uh, delved into uh, how the plants run and how things are operated. I held every job on the plant uh, in engineering and manufacturing, uh, and uh, that was that. That was a good background, but also uh, got transferred to Wilmington, Delaware, uh, for to open up my mind for uh, to put the co- corporate culture into it. Uh, and when I was up there, I was the uh, uh, in charge of the noise control program for, for the department and OSHA program. This assignment led me to all the plants and all the uh, management uh, groups. Uh, I had to deal with them uh, in, in, in that regard because it was a, uh, a departmental assignment. Uh, after that, uh, I was tr- transferred down to Kinston uh, in R&D and uh, uh, worked in R&D down there and had good uh, contact with uh, marketing and and uh, particularly our customers. I was uh, president of the TYA, which was the major uh, trade organization for, for the type of products that we were selling. I was, wanted to give you this little short background because what it did it gave me a broad perspective of, of textile fibers uh, and uh, broad broad uh, uh, interest in, in people that uh, were, were in the department at the, at the time uh, that uh, was was really uh, kind of an important thing which When I retired in 1999, uh, I'm a history buff, and uh, I've written some articles. I'm a freelance writer uh, of sorts, but uh, when I looked around, DuPont uh, Textile Fibers at that time had uh, built a major uh, industrial uh, organization, and and. uh group of group of product they developed a group of products if you go back to the rayon days uh 1950 the rayon group uh was dwindling down after the war and they had so there was three uh uh, processes three products that they had uh polymers that they had at that time and they, they were trying to figure out how to develop those into a business. Uh, they were uh, the Orlon uh, and uh, Dacron and Nylon uh, products. Uh, and it was important to to uh, have those products and, and produce them. And uh, that's what uh, uh, Dacron said, or uh, out Fiber set out to do at that time. Well, when I, Retired, I looked back and I saw that this huge uh, industrial complex had achieved many, many things, many developments it, uh, uh, many things that uh, altered the culture of the uh, uh, population at that time and nobody had taken the time to record who did what in that in, in that huge endeavor. And uh, I looked at that and i said, well, now uh, I got a problem here because I like to see this happen where people get recognized for what they do and and how they did it. And when I looked at it, it was a huge uh, time consuming uh, or it would be a time consuming operation to get in and, and record that history. But the fact is, it it was uh, it was needed, and I was pretty highly motivated at that time to occur this uh, uh, work that I, work that uh, I was thinking of doing. Uh, when you look at at some real kind of basic things uh, that that would drive a person to to do the work I, I put in. Uh, the uh, every time DuPont built a plant like they come into Cape Fear or, or, or Camden or, or one of our plant sites, they created a middle class in that community because we came in we needed people that uh, uh, were pretty smart technically and or, or mechanically or uh, and uh, that we paid a good wage, with well, a good wage, for drawing in the, a certain class of people. And we would uh, it, uh, build a culture, a historical culture in there of a middle class. The uh, other side of the coin that everybody knows about is uh, we took Pot Dacron and made no iron shirts out of it. Let me just simplify it to no iron shirts. Uh, when that happened, women didn't have to sit, stand over a ironing board. And guess what? They went out and got jobs and uh, uh, went into the workforce. Now that's been documented many times, but I just mentioned it here because it's a driver to get this history recorded. Anytime you, Alter a culture, you alter history. You create history, rather, and that's what was—that's what happened over this period from 1950 to essentially 2000. And nobody had taken the time to record that. Well, I felt like it—it uh, it, it should be done. So I—I I began this this project. Uh, does that make sense to you, uh, Ben?
0: That makes perfect sense to me uh, as an oral historian, but uh, why did you decide on oral history in particular as opposed to trying to collect, oh, I don't know, archival documents, for instance?
1: When when uh, several things happened there, when, when uh, I began this project, uh, the first thing I did was take, uh, develop a, an address list of about Nine hundred to a thousand people that I knew and and had contact with from this broad uh, work that I did in in Dupont. Uh, So you took that list and I sent that list out and said, "You all write up your history and send it in and let me edit it." So everything was going to be written, okay? And you got nine hundred to a thousand people and. That are kind of retired and they're not interested in writing. I got made a very meager response to that, so I was casting around and I was talking to uh, Hagley at the at that time and uh, Dr. Roger Hurwitz, I think he's still there. I'm not sure. Yes, uh, he's my boss. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> He, I mean, this has been years ago now, <laughs> but uh, he uh got wind and he he and I talked and uh, he led me on to oral history and uh, actually gave me some a couple of books to read. And I think it was a couple of books, maybe not one or two, but anyway, uh, some literature to, to uh, think about, and out of that. Out of that uh, uh, interaction between me and uh, Roger, uh, we came up with the, the, the proposal to use oral, personal oral history. i got to emphasize this, the word is personal. It's got to be used in all this language. It's not just oral history. It's personal oral history because it's given by an individual and specific to that individual. So I kind of, kind of lock into that but I locked into that from Roger and God bless him here we are <laughs> <laughs> so answer your question that's that's kind of how uh, I got it uh, when you look at it though there's other points that get that get uh, act, uh, attractive to him uh, one it was easy to do it wasn't that nobody had a right uh, uh, documents and, and uh, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the people own it, the oral personal history is owned by that person that, that, uh, gives it. And so it's their history, however, they remember it, however they, uh, lived it. Uh, and, and that's kind of important. Uh, it's easy to add to, if you want to add another segment, uh, uh Later on, you just add it on the disc, and the, it, it, it's 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 easy to do. Uh, the it allows the people, the interviewee, the person to go into depth, go into depth into their history and and the details and and the little things that. May not be important today, but may be important tomorrow, or may be important with another uh, interviewee's input. Uh, so, uh, why uh, personal oral history? That's that's about the way it happened. <laughs> I hope that does that answer your question.
0: Yeah. So you're drawn to the the power of the individual in a way you could say.
1: Absolutely, absolutely when. Uh, what what I was trying to do from the beginning was to identify who did what, not what group did what, but what group, what person did what, and I think that that's really important to get down to that level. Now there's uh, uh, problems with that because uh, it, even though you do all this, you're still talking about thirty thousand people in textile fibers over time. There. And uh, you're not going to interview 30,000 people. <laughs> no way. You're not going to get 30,000 write-ups either. Uh, so you you have to think, think it through that way also.
0: Right. How's that? That's great. Uh, and that being said, how do you prioritize who, who you'd like to talk to? And how do you conduct these interviews? Because I imagine that's changed a bit since you've been at this since. Oh, what at least 2008
1: yes yes the uh uh let me tell you uh as far as i was concerned anybody and everybody that had a connection to textile fibers was an active interviewee uh i didn't try to resolve anybody outside uh you know and not be able to interview people uh the the interview groups all go all the way from the ceos all the way down to the first operator that entered the cape fair plant uh, when it first was ready to start up so we cover, and and i'll I'll talk a little bit more about this later on but we cover everybody that uh, uh wants to come in now there's people that uh, politely said no it's not for me and and you know i understand that so we put them on a on a list don't bother and they don't call <laughs> <laughs> uh but uh so anybody wanted to um, and, and uh it's even even uh it's uh, it's interesting even the uh, uh uh there's some some group of people there's few people that the son or daughter did the interview for the the fellow that was deceased Uh, and so it was even you know let's say even dead people we've interviewed so it's uh, I think it's worked out well that way. Now let me talk about giving this interview uh, because I think I've deviated over time away from uh, some of the standards that uh, Roger and I talked about uh, uh, many years ago. Uh, the way I did this interview is I've got a uh, uh, thing I call a white paper, which is uh, a, a list of all kinds of different uh, uh, activities that people could be involved in that would be the subject of their, their interview. So the, really the first thing I did was find the, uh, uh, address list that, that, uh, worked, that was active and working, uh, there's various lists around that people have kept for, uh, funerals and parties and, uh, contacts. So people have these lists and, and so I went around knocking on doors of people I knew that had those lists and got them. And that's the 900 to a thousand, uh, uh, Addressees that I was able to get. So what I do is I send out a, a mailer to that group of people that are on that list that thousand people and some of them are mail addresses. So it's not all email, but uh, anyhow, contact a thousand people. And On that Uh, uh Letter a letter that I've written and to invite them to participate, and then out of that, people would come forth and say, "Look, I'd like to participate." So that's how I got the people uh, identified, the interviewees. And I, like we said, I'm not cutting anybody out or dropping anybody off the list. Uh, and uh, the thought uh, uh, going I lost my train of thought now. The uh, uh, people would come forth and, and uh, volunteer to take to, to be an interviewee and so what I would do is I'd contact them and we would get uh, a uh, two-week uh, period of time from now to for two weeks let them think about and organize their thoughts no no writing no research just organize your thoughts as to what you remember. And uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, it, it, we would schedule a two-hour block of time two weeks from now. and always a two-block, two-hour block of time to give everybody time to to uh, uh, express what they, they need. And if they were uh, longer than two hours, we'd reschedule another two-hour block in, in a couple of weeks. So, uh, we always had an open hand, there's no time limit on it. You, you, you don't have to do five minutes, you don't have to do two hours and 10 minutes, it's whatever time it takes to get your uh, story across. So uh, that's uh, uh, what we do, now, the two hours. Uh, and. All these interviews, with the exception of maybe two or three that were in, were in the town where I live, which is Kinston, North Carolina, uh, the uh, uh, all were done over a telephone, and the telephone worked well. Uh, you had to give up the personal relationship that you established if you're standing face to face, and that that was really an optimum way of doing it. But uh, given the population I was interviewing, it wouldn't work, it just didn't, didn't, uh, 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 wasn't able to do that. So we would go ahead with the interview. Now the interview, uh, I start people when they were born, where they were born, uh, how they grew up, what their parents did and how they went to school and, and that sort of thing. And that's very important in this interview process, i found, it's extremely important. Because what it does, it opens the person up. They start talking about things that they know so well. You know, growing up, where they were born, what their mother and dad did. They know that extremely well, so they get comfortable. And then when they you get them to DuPont and they start talking about their uh, experiences at DuPont, they're in relationship with you. They're talking to you. They You and them own it. And uh, because you've done this preliminary stuff to get them uh, soft, quote softened up, if you want to use that word, mm-hmm. so uh, and and this tape would be put on a DVD, and that's what I would forward to Hagley, and Hagley would take the information with the DVD and everything and archive that that information for people to use. Uh, so that's the. Uh, It'll, oh, a couple of other things. In that interview, I had I asked no questions. I didn't ask any questions. I just sat there quietly as I could and let the person do the interview. Uh, and once you do it to get them softened up and so forth, it works so well. No questions, no nothing. They just talk and talk. Uh, you, you know, it work, It works extremely well uh and the other thing is there's no edits whatever they want to say is put down in that tape in that recording and that's there i, I didn't cut nothing out now i had a couple of people that wanted some some things removed that they said <laughs> that they felt sorry about so i did remove those but that was only two people out of you know 250 so so uh that's how the interview was was conducted, uh, and I think that is is most important to get everybody comfortable and and go through. and They own that interview, and it's 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 really there's uh, a couple couple of people have come, more than a couple, maybe ten or fifteen people have come and and asked for the uh, a copy of the DVD to give to their Children and their grandchildren, yeah, and uh, uh, it's it's important. I want to get, I want to play something. Uh, the sound on this is is not very good uh, because it was taped off a, a recording machine. But this this is a, an indication of the, uh, the interview success. Hang on, sure.
0: Is it playing? I'm afraid it's very quiet. What, Ben? said, so I'm afraid it's very quiet on my end. I can't quite. Okay,
1: can you add it? Um, I, that's all right. We can talk about that after a while. Okay. That,
0: uh, yeah,
1: that's an important uh, bit of listening for me because it really – really gives me a lot of motivation to, to continue to do this work when somebody comes back like that, Philip, and, and talks to you that way. Uh,
0: Absolutely.
1: But basically, that's, do you have any questions about the uh, uh, interview process?
0: No. Um, you know, I, I'd like to try to see if I can get us to listen to that for this uh for this bit, I'm going to put a pin in our recording and we'll resume presently. Okay, and we're back. Unfortunately, we've had some technical difficulties there. If you could summarize the content of the audio you wanted to play for us today.
1: This audio was a uh, uh, telephone call that was uh, given uh that i did not answer the answering machine answered it so it's garbled a little bit or or not very clear but the important thing is this man this fellow was a he was uh well up in management and uh in, in textile fibers and i interviewed him and his interview was archived at hagley and it somehow his daughter and granddaughter found the interview on Hagley and listened to it and were so happy to know what her their father and grandfather had done during these days in DuPont and this was another uh use for these interviews and he was very happy and very appreciative that we had that it would done that and his girls found it so that was uh that was the gist of the Recording, we tried to get in, but technical difficulties prevented it.
0: Oh, wow. Um, do you remember this gentleman's name? We could provide a link to his interview in the uh summary that'll be below uh our podcast.
1: Yes, this uh John Grohusky, G R O W H U S K Y. John Grohusky.
0: All right. Yes, we'll go ahead and do that so that anyone who's curious can listen to this interview for themselves, too. Um, do you have any other anecdotes that, you've, that have happened over the time you've been collecting this project?
1: Well, uh, there's been a number of people, like I said earlier, 10 to, 10 to 15 people have asked for the, uh, uh, a copy of their uh, interview so that they could pass it on to their children. Uh, and, and their grandchildren uh, I think that's a great great thing that that, that happens that way and it, like like John said it's uh, it wasn't expected to begin with but it's happening and it's great
0: right and since you've been collecting these for a long time now has your approach or view on oral history changed at all over that time
1: uh and frankly yes I, i've uh gotten real comfortable with it uh and, and uh i've had a, a, a whole number of people including the ceo uh tell me that uh it's a great interview and a great uh, uh way of recording things for him uh so we've had we've had uh, a number of people uh, various walks come back and uh, uh, do it and you know what a couple of these address lists are managed by people that are really my uh, cheerleaders out there in the field Uh Martinsville's got a, a, a man and woman down there that were employees that they they just uh, think this is the greatest thing in the world and and will uh try to get people to, to uh, see it that way and interview. So there's been a, a whole number of things. And uh, as far as uh, uh, oral, personal oral history, I almost forgot the word, <laughs> personal oral histories are, are still active, and I'm still working on them. Uh, although the problem we've got now is that the population is is significantly up in age and there's not many people around anymore that, uh, shared in this glorious years of, uh, 50 to 2000. we so, uh, uh, get down to the bottom.
0: <laughs> right. And I, I have to say, I have to share for the listeners, if this, this is in, uh, competition to be our largest oral history collection that we have in our archives Uh, i don't know how close it is to the brandywine valley oral history collection at this point in terms of length and number of people interviewed but it's getting up there we're still still working at it i'm
1: still working it's just here and there but uh we're still working
0: did you learn anything or have you learned anything doing this that you weren't necessarily expecting to learn
1: uh that's that's a good question i gotta think about it a minute uh i did not uh bump into anything of that nature i learned a lot uh, and i've tried to record that those learnings and uh uh actually there's 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 potential the potential is out in front of us not behind us on this thing the uh uh Storylines and the uh, that uh, I'd like to talk about a little bit is uh, give you a glimpse into that. I think and uh, this, when you look at what, when I look at what we've done, we we produced two books. Uh, one book is is Stainmaster, the introduction of Stainmaster to uh, uh, the world. Which was a terrific marketing effort, and marketing broke a lot of uh, taboos and got that out there, and really made Dupont a bunch of money. By the way, that was managed and and, and handled. Uh, uh, that, was, that was that that's one storyline that that is has already been done. The other storyline is Supreme Abraham. Uh, in Lycra, worldwide Lycra. Can you imagine what would the world would look like if Lycra hadn't come along and brought brought this spandex uh, fabric into the market and, and uh, made women look good and also DuPont a uh, whole bunch of money. Uh, so there's two books there that uh, cover the uh, 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 events that I've mentioned. But there's the other things happening. Uh, the uh, uh, I, I don't want to get into the process, but there is a piece of equipment that is required to make Dupont or make uh, nylon and uh, or nylon and dacron or polyester. And the invention of that piece, in my view of the world is the second largest, the second largest impact uh, of anything that ever happened to textile fibers. Of course, the first one was Crothers coming up with a polymer, but this group, Tom Nelson and Lil Lil, uh, Nolan uh, developed this piece of equipment. And I have personally interviewed Tom and. It, the night they went in and how they did it in the bait in the shop at uh, uh, Waynesburg uh, that allowed the industry to make the make the products the way they are now and at the cost they are. Without that invention, it would have never happened. And that interview is is sacred to me. Uh, It's his personal words and his personal, actually he wrote it down for me. Uh, And I think that's just, you know, firsthand knowledge as it happened. Uh, Terrific, terrific. Uh, Moving on, uh, 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 some of our plants uh, had a progression system that held women back that don't women to uh, to go to a certain level. And uh, the push and the shove to change that was very important and very big. When that change happened, all those women moved up the, to higher levels in the plants and really dominated <laughs> the men. And we call that in the interviews that we did at Martinsville, Uh, and a terrific way of managing people and and getting the results and then getting into trouble and so forth so on. Uh, Kevlar marketing is another area of uh, interest uh, that that the storyline that ought to be developed. Kevlar was a uh, tremendous technical success but to market that stuff, it, everything that marketing tried to do was small, few pounds, not many pounds, and a lot of work to get it involved. And so, the, just the story of how you had to market Kevlar is is a fantastic uh, uh, area of uh, discussion. Uh, we had two. We another area was in the late uh, '60s we found a certain uh, process that uh, uh, would change change the, uh, the uh, operation of, our, of the textile systems. Uh, I'm not going into the details of that because it wouldn't be appropriate, but DuPont had the decision to either move forward or downward in the, uh, down in the chain of uh, manufacturing or let the uh, uh, customers that were already out there do that. Dupont uh, and and there's interview in the interviews in there. There's enough to start this conversation, but Dupont could have moved down into the or uh, uh, down into the manufacturing system and and completely changed the whole atmosphere, but. Management at that time decided we're not going to bother our customers. We're not going to take their business away. So they elected not to do that. That left a big hole and and a lot of uh, uh, questions about the future of those products. Uh, Also, DuPont had had a... uh, uh, decision or had a desire rather, desire to compete with silk, to replace silk. And they tried and worked, and and this is the storyline of how they tried to do that. And eventually it failed and completely uh, dropped that uh, effort. Uh, Our relationship with DuPont of Canada is another storyline that uh, needs to be talked about. DuPont Canada was a completely different organizations, uh, but uh, the relationship between the two is, is a formative discussion. I would recommend if if somebody is interested, I've got three interviews on there of, of the uh, uh, CEOs, Willard, uh, Kroll, and, uh, uh, Oh my God! I've forgotten his name Chad Holiday. Uh, people might want to listen to those as to the area of when they were born and how they were raised and that sort of stuff it's it's not the kind of thing you read in business Week or that kind of stuff you know, but it's 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 interesting to listen to how those fellows develop themselves. Uh, There's an area that uh, is of major interest to uh, to me, and that's marketing. Nobody talks about corporate marketing very much, but that was a tremendous organization that influenced a lot of products. Uh, I've mentioned this list of storylines just to get people interested and started, and, and here's areas that, you know, researchers could come into your organization, get a grant, and go study some of these areas. Uh, I think that would be like a normal process. Uh, the uh, In this white paper, I have over 100 a, a of these storylines that uh, uh, people can, can work on, uh, you know, in the future. I'm talking a lot. I hope I'm not off the subject, <laughs> but uh, I want to make sure that there's people know that there's tremendous effort or tremendous areas out here that can be researched that properly so and should be. And uh, these are some of them,
0: right? Well, I say, I think you've kind of moved on into starting to answer my next question for you, which is. Uh, what do you hope the the future holds for these interviews? Because as you know, at this point, uh, some of our eldest interviews that we already have archived are approaching 70 years of age. So there's some longevity to this. So what, what do you hope someone using these for research 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 and beyond might get from this collection? Like big picture well, type deals.
1: Well, the that's a real good question and, and, and a tough one to give you a clear answer on because it is out in the future. And what is the future in 30 years from now? What do people want to do and and how do they want to? Uh, what is the uh, what is the management processes that are in place now? How will they translate to the future? You you're certainly not going to translate numbers because there's the numbers today are, you know, uh, sales numbers and things like that. They're probably not gonna be of any value or interest to anybody 30 years from now. But people will want to understand, I think, in my opinion, understand how the culture changed because history is, to me, in my mind, history is a matter of changing the culture today and creating the history for tomorrow. Now, when you do that, what do you want to bring along with you to the 30-year uh, point from now? Well, you can bring on the the, uh, the people that uh, uh, managed and the people that developed and how they did it, and which one was successful uh, and which one wasn't, and and uh, if you. Take these storylines, you will have that developed and ready for those people 30 years from now. So it's, it's, it's there and history is, is, is valuable in my opinion, uh, but it's only valuable if it's used. And, and 30 years from now, people will use that.
0: I think they will. Um, so that's rendered out my list of questions that I had developed for today. Was there anything that you were prepared to talk about that we didn't cover today?
1: I think, uh, Bill, Ben, you let me go good. I like that. Uh, <laughs> it was it was like I was just talking about, you know, don't interrupt, just sit there and let let the person talk. And uh, I appreciate that. It's, it's I, I feel like it was a good interview. Uh, so I All appreciate right. your way of doing it. The, uh, there's one thing that I... I uh, didn't mention, but, uh, let me, let me throw it in here at, the, at this point. When I started on this project back way back, uh, at, at 08 and so forth, the, there was a decision, a strategic decision I had to make at that time. And, uh, the, I could have taken and taken one subject, one of these, uh, uh, storylines I was talking about and work that storyline down by itself, not do anything else but just focus on stay master, let's say. And Mm -hmm. uh, that would have been a a good thing. It would have produced probably a good piece of work uh, because you could focus and get people involved on it it, and uh, uh, it'd be well done. Now uh, that's option number one option number two is to take and get as much history as you can get recorded in a time frame you've got before these people start passing on and, and you lose that so the decision was very specific narrow area broad area a lot of history I choose the, the of course i chose choose the broader area and a lot of history is the uh, uh, strategic path I wanted to go down. So that's the way that happened. Now, what I'm hoping is there's enough nuggets out here, enough tile in the mosaic that you can, people can put together, uh, uh, enough of, of a picture of the history of any of these storylines. And then research the rest of it and then have the book that you'd have that you would have had in the beginning. Except in the case I did, you'll have a lot of history in all these uh, uh, interviews. Absolutely. Oh.
0: I think that's a good way to end things. Is there anything else you wanted to add?
1: No, thank you, but I appreciate everything you've done, Ben, and I feel good, and uh, Kevin and and, uh, Roger and all the guys, uh, I really appreciate the the help they've given me, and uh, it's been good.
0: And thank you for sitting down with me today. Uh, We really appreciate it here at Hagley. And for our audience at home, If you'd like more Hagley History Hangouts and more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, you can find us online at Hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. And if you'd like to explore the DuPont Textile Fibers Oral History Collection, you can find that online at Hagley.org slash oral history. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you, Ben.
0: Yes.